From Washington, this is the Macrocast with Hamilton Place Strategies and Markets Policy Partners. Good morning. You're listening to the Macrocast brought to you by Hamilton Place Strategies and Markets Policy Partners. Uh, great to be. It's a, a, another, another uh, uh, fascinating week. We had a ton of uh, Fed speak this week, which we're going to get to in um uh, in a little while, but this is Tony Fratto in uh, back in New York City this week. John Fagan is off this week. Brendan Walsh is here from Marcus Policy Partners, um, and we're really lucky to have Ben Colton with us uh, today too. Ben is director of research at Beacon Policy Advisors and a great friend uh, to HBS and a former uh, staffer at HBS. Uh, so it's like uh, it's like family coming home. And but uh, uh, Ben, uh, Ben, welcome for, to the show. First of all. Uh, great. Yeah, really, really great to have you on. And um, we're going to Ben Ben wrote uh, some work in one of Beacon's policy notes uh, about reconciliation. And it's like one of those topics uh, with everything going on in the world right now that we haven't spent a lot of time on. Uh, but want to get a sense from, uh, you know, from Ben on, on how he sees that coming together. Joe Manchin once again at the Lynch at the linchpin as uh, which is kind of you know obviously a reoccurring theme. We want to get into that with Ben right now, but before we get into that with Ben, Brendan, you were at the Masters. Yeah, yeah, it was back Did to you normal. Tiger yesterday. Uh, I saw I saw him on Wednesday. Uh, we followed him around. Uh, he played with Justin Thomas and uh, Freddie Couples in his. Uh, uh, that must have been a great round. That, that, what yeah. a great grouping. Yeah, that was really cool. It was also nice because I mean you could you could still see him, but also he took up probably a third of the the patrons, so you could you could walk around the rest of the course and kind of have it to yourself. Well, he had a hell of a round yesterday. It was good to yeah. see him. Uh, you know, what he, he shot a seventy-one yesterday. He's right there. I don't know when he tees off today, but um, so he he's in the afternoon today. Yep. He is in the afternoon. Yeah. Hey, look, I mean, all of us, like you know, who have to work during the week and don't get to take off and go to the Masters and don't get to watch the Masters <laughs> because we're working. The only thing we want is, you know, I, I don't care what he shoots today as long as it gets him to the weekend. You know, we want Tiger to get to the weekend. The Tigers um, never missed the. I guess the second time he played it when he was over nineteen years old, he missed the cut. But since then, he's never missed it. So if Tiger was confident enough to come up and play, he knows he's making the weekend. <laughs> well, it'll be good. It'll be, uh, be great if we get to watch that this weekend. And it is fascinating, especially on the, the, a practice round, because, you know, you hit a bunch of balls. But the, the biggest thing is once they get up to the hole, they, they put the, the caddies put, um, you know, discs out where the, the, the holes are going to be on the, the four days. Yep. And what they do is they practice their misses. So they, they go into the bunker or they go to the, you know, the worst outcome and then try to, to par out from there. I love the practice rounds. And I, I have to say, I'm, I'm much, much more of a, uh, of a U.S. Open guy. I just like, I love the Open Championship. I love the, t- the tougher. I know everybody loves Augusta. Yeah, but yeah. come on, I like, like the St. Jude Classic is a better, is a, is a tougher track than, uh, than Augusta. And this is like, like we're going to get, we never get reactions like that on our show. Like people start like leaving comments on our, uh, <laughs> that, that'll the, definitely get a but look, just look at the scores, right? I mean, like the scores are always, you know, double digit under par scores to win. And it's just like, so it's not, it's, I know it's beautiful. I know the tradition, I know the history, but I'm a U.S. Open guy. And so I've been to a bunch of U.S. Opens and love them. But I always try whenever I can to go to, um, 
to go to uh, practice rounds. Especially, like, you know, the, I've seen uh, you know three different U.S. Opens at a, at uh, Oakmont, mm-hmm. in Pittsburgh, uh, and uh, Congressional, and a few other places. There's so much fun, right? And like, there's uh, the, you get to see these guys working without the pressure of of you know put, uh, putting a score in the book, and uh, and it's just it's great to see them work. And in terms of the, so I went with Matt Delafano, who has been on the podcast a matter of time, and he's kind of in a a logistics engineering kind of guy. So he was geeking out just how well the, the event is run. You know, it, you, a line looks like it's going to be a half hour to get in the bathroom and it's four minutes. Uh, you know, the, the, all the concession stands, you're in and out in two minutes and, and they don't charge you anything. <laughs> well, but, for the clothes, and, they, yeah, they charge you a good rate. But for yeah, attendance else, is so much. I mean, but the, the, they keep attendance in check. Uh, on, you yeah. know, the other, 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 uh, uh, events are uh, are much bigger, but um, all right, that's all for golf. Hopefully, let's uh, it'd be great if we have something uh, good to talk about next week. Uh, if it's a if it's a good Tiger finish, exactly. Yeah, Ben Colton, welcome to the MacroCast. Um, I was almost like when I saw your note on uh, on reconciliation, I was like, oh, I haven't heard anybody talk about reconciliation <laughs> in two weeks and like, like wonder if we can get Ben on to talk about it and uh and get us an update how are you uh talk to us about how you're seeing things right now especially after you know we just got through a uh you know the senate in session for about six consecutive uh six weeks it was a very long session for the senate um and how are you uh you know but how do you see the rest of the year and 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 what's your sense of confidence on whether they do or do not get anything done in reconciliation yeah i mean reconciliation was once called in a former day build back better and it was known as bdb yeah it's also known these days as another three letter initial which is rip uh but reconciliation in general i think it's tbd and and being a former HPSer, I know never to bury. I know never to bury the lead. So I'm going to say up front, I'm bullish that Democrats will pass something um, by by the August recess. And I, I guess the main reason why is this: I believe most Democrats have gone through, or they're at least in the process of going through, their stages of legislative grief to accept a Joe Manchinized version of reconciliation. And and just like taking a step back for like how we got here and kind of the mess that Democrats seem to, to be in, is just the original sin that caused BDB to derail was just an underestimation by Democratic leadership of the difficulty of managing a split Senate. I just, I don't think people realize how crazy a split Senate is and the weird dynamics that, you know, can come up like having two President Joes of Biden and Manchin. And it's kind of this current split Senate is the longest ever in in history. And in the past, they usually dissolve from defections or deaths. And so good party leadership, they can reliably get 95% of the rank and file in line for votes. And that's usually sufficient for majorities, but but just, that's not the case in a split Senate or a House with four votes to spare. It's those idiosync- idiosyncrasies for members that kind of matter. And even though politics has become more nationalized, there are still kind of regional or personal idiosync- idiosyncrasies. And so I think like today, Democrats are finally accepting the premise that a West Virginia Democrat has real differences from the national Democratic brand. And, and the same goes for kind of a kind of classic Arizona Democrat. So they're doing kind of one of these high school math optimization problems. Try to maximize spending in reconciliation given the constraints of Manchin and, and Senator Kirsten Cinema. And so we, we've seen, you know, Manchin kind of re-engaging. I mean, he's kind of aloof, but he's also been, been saying things and that he wants to do reconciliation as it was originally intended to do when it was created in the 1970s, which is to decrease the deficit. So $2 in offsets for $1 in spending. He doesn't want to do social spending, keep that to the kind of regular order. And he wants everything to be made permanent and, and not be a temporary gimmick. 
And then for cinema, she wants the universe of offsets to be from the House passed Build Back Better, where Democrats actually worked with her to appeal to her demands. And there were about like $2.1 trillion in offsets, but realistically whittling it down uh, because of maybe the Senate parliamentarian or just some other kind of carve outs can say that maybe there's sensibly $1.75 trillion to $2 trillion in offsets that, that are available in a reconciliation package. So that's a maximum of yeah. $875 billion to $1 trillion in spending. Um, so I guess, I guess the, the big question that I have, is, is there enough agreement on the offsets between mansion and cinema? And, and there's some real philosophical differences uh, on raising rates for mansion and the extent of drug pricing versus cinema who doesn't want to raise rates. But uh, I think there, I think there is, I, I, there's, there's many ways to get to like $1 trillion in, in offsets that I, I believe can get both mansion and cinema. I mean, for one, there's the, the house passed drug pricing measures and the IRS reforms uh, that I think are both acceptable to both. Um, yeah, let's talk. Uh, let's talk. Yeah, just yeah. yeah list those out, Ben. Like on, on what you think. Uh, let's start with. Let's just start with offsets. I'm going to ask you about composition also. But with how much yeah, so, revenue you think they're worth that they're they they could be working with. So I mean, if you want to go, kind of what's the the lowest common denominator here? Yeah. Joe Manchin last July he released uh, or he had this secret deal with with uh, Chuck Schumer about like a $1.5 trillion deal that he'd accept. And that was $1.5 trillion in offsets. And what is that overlapping with the House Build Back Better? There are a couple of things that are overlapping. There is the IRS reforms closing the tax gap. Uh, there's drug pricing measures. And there's the corporate minimum tax of uh, uh, 15%. Um, so I, I think the drug pricing measures, I mean, that's a lot of times offsets are a means and ends, but the drug pricing uh, measures, they're, they're an ends unto itself. And there was about $250 billion that got kind of the okay from Cinema, who's a, a pro-farmer Democrat. And then the IRS closing the tax gap, so increasing, uh, increasing funding for, for IRS to, for, for greater, greater enforcement. That, that was scored as raising, I think, $127 billion, uh, although the Treasury was saying it's actually $320 billion. So that's right there. That's $377 billion to $570 billion. And so they need you know, uh, to get to, to $1 trillion. And so what are the, the least controversial things here? Um, in Build Back Better, there wasn't hardly a peep with the 3.8% net investment income tax for all active income and, and making excess business losses a loss limit permanent. Uh, those two were about $412 billion. I, I think you know, the administration really wants to try to get the, the OECD, OECD G20 uh, tax deal uh, implemented in the United States. And so pillar two, which is the, the, the 15% global minimum tax, they want uh, the United States to be compliant in that. Uh, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of issues in trying to get the deal fully you know fully implemented. But there was a real push to kind of to kind of raise the rates and kind of create uh, make it compliant in the United States. And I, I think that's something that Democrats can kind of get around at least to, to some extent. And then there's there's things like the adjusted gross income surtax. It was five and eight um, percent for for different levels that that was in uh, Bill Back Better. And it's, it's not quite like raising the rates, but I, I think there's, there, there's something that can be added. Uh, maybe not, maybe there's some further carve outs for pastures yeah, yeah. or things like that. Um, but again, I think from there, you're really getting to kind of $1 trillion. And uh, it, it's not quite what like Manchin is putting forward of, of raising the corporate tax rates, um, of ending carried interest and of, of raising capital gains rates. Um, but I, I still think that it's something that he, I mean, I think his biggest concern is he, he wants to decrease the deficit. And so if he gets that two to one offsets to spending, 
through this sort of revenue, I, I think that's something that he'd be okay with. So then at best, you're looking at, I mean, you know, really maybe five or $600 million of new spending in that case, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's it, I think it's you know Joe Manchin isn't part of the Senate Finance Committee, and so you know he he in his in his um, July July deal with 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 Schumer, he was saying let's do a fifteen percent domestic corporate minimum tax, yeah, uh, and that's what Democrats actually did. They did the the fifteen percent book tax minimum book tax, but kind of there's there's rumblings that. That yeah, Manchin is a stupid tax, but go, but go. Yeah, on. I mean, there's there's rumblings that Mansion is kind of yeah. has some problems with it, and I mean, there's obvious reasons. It's, just, it's very complicated, and like there's a lot of carve outs. So even though it's something that he proposed, you can kind of see that like just like he has this like theoretical or like philosophical view of taxes, but when you kind of get to the lobbying and kind of the nuts and bolts, that there there may be some pushback. So like you're saying it could be the, the top level could be 500, 600 billion. I'm not completely offsetting the the idea that I could maybe go up to 800 billion or something like that. Yeah, I can uh, imagine but, that too. But so what would that be spent on then? Tell me tell me the yeah. Piece, yeah, tell me the pieces that you think that if they were to get that revenue, what are the, what are they spending it on? What ends up in it? So it, it, it's certainly there's going to be a, a climate and energy report uh, 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 parts. I think that's going to be that's the number one spending area. It's a must and, must title, right? Is like it's well it's it's what mansion you know he's he's the the the, the chair of the senate uh, energy national uh natural resources committee it, it's something that he he is interested in uh of climate energy it's something that the finance committee chair ron wyden has worked closely with mansion on and, and, and mansion being from a coal state uh and supportive of fossil fuels in many ways he has like indicated uh it uh being okay with some sort of all of the above climate energy plan. And so there is like $555 billion in, in Build Back Better for, for, for climate and energy. It's, it's going to change. Um, you know, other mansion has been pretty skeptical of late of kind of bolstering electric vehicles uh, for, for, for consumers. But I think a lot of like the tax credits, the investment tax credits, the, the production tax credits for, for clean energy and making sure that like nuclear and hydrogen are, are part of the equation as well as like kind of mm-hmm. um, clean coal for, for, for mansion. Uh, I, I think that's something that he, he can certainly rally around. And so I, I think that, I mean, they were talking even up, up to $500 billion. And, and so I, I think it, it's very plausible that you can get something in, in that range minus some of the electric vehicles. Um, and so that's the bulk of it. And that may be what the only thing that Joe Manchin agrees to. Um, I, I think there is, there is a possibility for healthcare. I mean, is this healthcare? Is this one of those things that you just can't do through regular order these days? I mean, yeah. the ACA was uh, reconciliation, uh, repeal and replaced by Republicans uh, was reconciliation. It just, it's, it's, and, and being a West Virginian, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, it's a big vote. Like Robert, uh, Robert Byrd was a big supporter of the, the, the ACA that was Huge. Biden or that was Manchin's yeah, uh, predecessor. And so something like the ACA subsidies uh, or the closing the Medicaid gap, um, so the ACA subsidies, if they were made permanent, because they expire this year, it'd be around $220 billion. And, and the Medicaid gap, it would be $180 billion. So that's, that's not necessarily cheap, but I mean, there, there are ways you can, you can kind of finagle that in, into uh, something that meets kind of the, the, the constraints for, for, for mansion and, and cinema. So I get a feeling, look, I mean, if you, I agree with you on the, on that composition and I have a hard time seeing how you can get the spending down to mansions two to one um, ratio. I think the best you could do is, is 
pay for it with that revenue if they're lucky enough to get it. But I'll say this, like something I, you know, every time we go, th- every time I go through it, and I talk to other people and we go through it. And then I say, does this still get through the house? Like I know it got through the house last time. Does this still get through the house without m- losing four Democrats? Yeah, that's, I mean, right. I, I, mean, I think they do. I, I mean, I think like if, if, if that Manchinima nexus can be reached, it's about selling the rest of the caucus. And Again, I think, you know, most progressives are going through the stages of grief on their kind of their long cherished policy goals and build that better. You know, it was 10 years since they they last had unified control of government. And who knows? I mean, the next time they have unified control of government, a lot of these people won't be around anymore. And so it's this, you know, they, they were they were they had this this hope when they had had a unified control that they, they could get all this done. And they're, they're kind of realizing that not the case. And so can they kind of go through those stages of grief. And I just never underestimate the power of shifting the goalpost in politics and declaring victory in, in the face of defeat. I don't so, either. I, yeah, I could definitely look, I could see I, it's, but, but clearly it's what should have been done a long time ago. And I mean, like when you, you said, uh, I didn't want to interrupt you earlier, but you said, you know, uh, they, you know, they didn't, um, you know, it took them a while to come to the realization. I don't think there was any, you know, if you, if you talk to a leadership in the house or the Senate, especially the Senate, they were under no illusions that the, you know, the sort of fever dreams on Build Back Better were, is not something that was going to get done. And we're always going to have the filter of, of uh, mansion and cinema to deal with. And they recognize it really early, but you cannot bail on the progressive wing early, right? They had to show that there was a fight and they were going to try to do it and try to do everything. And, and so in a way, like, I, I mean, I t- completely understand the party dynamics of having to fight and to, sh- you know, and to show the progressive wing that you did try. Uh, and so that failure is the last thing, not the first thing. But from a broader macro political standpoint, wow, it's awful, right? It's like you've had a year of failure. You know, it's like week after yeah. week, not doing the thing you say is the most important thing to do week after week after week after week of saying we're going to try and the votes aren't there and mansions not there. And what about cinema? And maybe if we shrink it, maybe if we shrink it again. Right. You know what I mean? It's like reinforcing failure over and over and over week after week, just so that the the, the most progressive wing of the party will not beat you up for bailing early. And so, but voters out there, this is all they've heard is that, you know, well, the Democrats keep failing. Yeah, I, I think I, I agree I, that, you know, leadership, they knew they had to come to a compromise, but I, I think they were just had rose colored glasses because you know, Democratic, Democratic leadership, they asked for $1.9 trillion in the American Rescue Plan. That was their first reconcili- reconciliation bill. And they got 50 votes they in the Senate have- for a $1.9 trillion bill. In the second shortest time to complete a reconciliation bill ever. So I think they had reason to believe they could kind of lead, lead the way on a transformation, transformative and popular build back better and get everyone to fall in line. But I just, I think it was a, a, little, too, a yeah. little too cute of, of, of how, how they kind of, kind of finagled uh, the making kind of the provisions temporary and, and but arguing that, you know, this was actually uh, deficit neutral. And it just, it, look, I mean, if, if the set, if the Republicans had the, the same majority that Democrats do today, they wouldn't be able to pass Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, or at least they, they wouldn't be able to have, have, they wouldn't have been able to, they would have had to keep the salt deduction to satisfy the dozen Northeast Republicans who voted against it. Yes. And I just, you know, Pelosi is, I, I don't, I, I don't think people underestimate her, her, her power, 
Um, and, and, and Schumer, you know, you know, he's very much like he talks to everyone in the caucus, but I just, I don't think people were prepared for how difficult it is to, to kind of, even with the best of leadership to kind of wrangle uh, all those votes with such narrow margins. And okay. I think it was just like a, <laughs> they felt like, you know, they could get there if they just pushed a little harder or a little harder. And just, it was clear like this, the split Senate and this, this narrow house majority wasn't going to give. So you're, um, you think it'll come down to the wire in uh, August so to try to try to get this done before recess, have something that these guys can then go home and campaign on. In the, um... Yeah. I mean, I just, it's just reasonably the August recesses is, is the deadline. I mean, it, technically the deadline is when the FY22 budget resolution becomes inactive when FY23 begins in October, but you, you don't, you don't get something like reconciliation done between after recess and before the midterm elections. Um, I know there's like talk of maybe doing this by Memorial day. And I'm not saying that's, that's not, you know, possible, but we think we've, we've been through, I think Memorial day was a deadline from last year. And, and so right. here we are for this Memorial day. And so it, it, it just like, I, I think that Manchin seems to be re-engaging and after having a lot of the must pass legislation with appropriations and now having kind of uh, uh, now justice uh, Brown Jackson in, in place, I, I think that you can turn more to reconciliation, but I, there's still a lot of angst and a lot of kind of you know, dashed policy dreams that, that have to be kind of realized uh, for, for, for Democrats to kind of finally come to, to an agreement. And I'm not sure they can do that by Memorial Day, but I think they can do that by the August recess. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. Um, hey, why don't we take a break here? Yeah, that was uh, with uh, uh, Ben Colton with us from uh, Beacon Policy Advisors. Um, you can also find Ben on Twitter. He's at uh, Ben underscore Colton, K-O-L-T-U. And definitely look for him. Ben, stick stick around with us for uh, next segment. We're talk a little little Fed and inflation, and um, uh, so so please stick with us for uh, for that. Uh, you're listening to the Macrocast. Markets Policy Partners provides sophisticated financial market analysis that is independent, accessible, and actionable for a broad audience. Learn more at marketspolicy.com or visit them on Twitter at marketspolicy. I'm back on the Macrocast. Uh, ben Colton from uh, Beacon Policy Advisors with us. Uh, Brendan Walsh from Markets Policy Partners, as always, our our uh, co-host of the show. Uh, John Fagan is not with us today. He's taking a break today, which is yep. We do it every special. week, so sometimes you can take a day off. <laughs> Brendan, uh, well, you were, uh, you know, uh, running around the Masters this week. Uh, Fed, you know, f- f- uh, uh, Fed governors were out talking, like, I mean, all over. Brainerd kicked it off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Powell last week, but, uh, you know, but Brainerd really, uh, in her speech, um, if, if, if there was any question as to where the uh, Fed was going to be, uh, you know, the signal they were sending about, you know, rates and, and the balance sheet, she made it crystal clear, didn't she? Yeah, and she's definitely one of the the handful that you want to pay attention to, uh, especially following up on Powell from last week. You know, she she really uh, locked it down. And then I also think that the minutes on Wednesday even more reinforced that. You know, the minutes do recap what happened in the meeting, but <laughs> they write the minutes so they can <laughs> emphasize things uh, more and less. So I think it, it's pretty clear that the the the, the Fed is taking this opportunity where markets, you know, the, the, the equities have rebounded and, and, you know, the, the volatility is, is um, stabilized. 
Uh, actually, we're, we're not really looking at an inverted yield curve like we were uh, last week uh, as much. Um, to take this opportunity to try to do, I think two things are, are big on their, their uh, to-do list. One, really start to aggressively reduce the size of the balance sheet. And two, I think they really would like to do this 50 basis point um, at the next meeting. Yeah, it seems pretty clear on the 50 basis points that uh, actually I think both are uh, yeah, both yeah. being pretty clear right now. I think uh, Lael Brainerd made that very, very clear. But even Bullard yesterday, um, you know, I think he felt and the, the comments we've heard from others, uh, Charles Evans and I uh, can't remember who else was out, but. The, the, the Evans sense- is another one you really want to listen to. And he was much more hawkish than his previous, you know, three, four months. Yeah. But, he's yeah. not a voting, he's not a voting no. member uh, right now, but, uh, but you still want to listen to him because I think he does have a good sense of where uh, he's, he's a, he is a good voice for the, for the board, but he's, um, but this, the sense we got was, you know, had the Russia invasion not happened yeah. and the, the shock there absolutely would have uh, been a, a 50 basis point increase in the policy rate last time. And so, I think that's pretty clear. I think I don't think uh, uh, you know uh, Lil Brainerd was enforce, reinforcing that, but also to also she she focused a great deal on the balance sheet uh, and the sort of you know rapidly uh, you know rapid movement, much more rapid I think than people had uh, been thinking on on reducing the size of the balance sheet. So they're going to attack it both ways, which um, you know which makes sense. Um, but we, you know, and and they're not leaving any uh, doubt in market. So, like, if if someone, if you know, if we see a fifty basis point increase next time, and I think you're right, um, no one should be surprised by that. Are we seeing it in in mark in uh, in uh, expectations? Is that being priced in a fifty basis point, or is it too early? Uh, no, we're pretty we're pretty much there at at this point. Yeah. Uh, I believe it's about uh, forty basis points, which means it's fifty basis points. It's fifty. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything you can- and, and the market seems to be taking, but also from we've talked a lot about inflation and, and obviously high inflation does justify um, raising rates, especially off of zero. But the rest of the economy, especially the, the employment situation, we just had jobless claims. It was the lowest level of jobless claims basically ever. ever. Um, and, um, you know, the economy, especially uh, if you need a job, uh, there's a lot of people that are willing to hire you right now. Yeah. By the way, I never, I didn't go back and look at the size of the uh, labor force back in 1968. Right. Uh, but remember that like the last time that we had uh, weekly jobless claims in the range of 165,000 new claims was in the late 1960s. And the size of the labor force was considerably smaller than yeah, it, it was almost half also because yeah, women hadn't fully entered the, the labor force in the 60s. exactly. So, so, so it is a it, it's an even more impressive number than exactly. Think, right? Yeah, we don't a, we don't adjust that for population. We just because in the end, it it is an economic data point, but really it is a, a bunch of checks that get sent out because you're unemployed. <laughs> yeah, so it's so that's uh, so you're right. I think we're you know we seem to be pretty tight. Uh, the, the last jobs uh, you know uh, payroll non farm payrolls report uh, showed that uh, job creation is continuing apace we're not seeing any evidence of that tailing off um going forward so i think you're right uh, they and, and this is something that i think bullard emphasized yesterday as well was just a very strong belief that they believe that the, the economy is in a strong enough place there is enough economic activity mm-hmm. um 
that they will just be taking the froth off the economy, not, uh, not pushing it. But that said, like inflation fears are rising, not shrinking. You know, people, there there isn't a lot of confidence that they can land it uh, easily. But I do think this week had some interesting data points that can make the Fed feel a little more confident. So the Mannheim index uh, measures uh, used car prices. And for the first time, uh, really since the pandemic began, uh, it's down. So it's down 3.4% on the latest uh, print. Used car prices have been an, an enormous contributor to the overall inflation rate, especially because we seasonally adjust things and used car prices always go down. So yeah. when they go up, it kind of double, it almost gets double counted. Uh, so now th- there are a lot of indications in the last month or so that a lot of the big goods uh, producing contributors to the CPI and PCE uh, are starting to have moderated and actually starting to reverse. That that can give the Fed a lot of confidence. Th- that's not enough to reach their, you know, two to 3% target, but it's enough to, to lower the monthly uh, increases to more normal, you know, 0.3 uh, rather than the, the 0.5 and 0.7s that they've been having. And, and that can give them a more confidence that they're not actually pushing the, the economy uh, into recession to, they, they don't have to be so aggressive to push the economy into recession in order to uh, tame inflation. Yeah, it's a, re- it's a really, uh, and we have to have a lot of faith in that story, yes. right? Yeah. Like you have to have faith in uh, the, you know, supply chain, problems and uh and what's happening with demand because you know otherwise if you just do a um you know uh, uh sort of a machine calculus the only way you can tame inflation is if you get the policy rate higher than yeah. inflation so you got to get you know so we have to push the We're not even close policy to rate to seven, yeah <laughs> we, we need interest rates up above seven or eight percent which yeah. isn't going to happen but it looks a lot to people who were alive at that time counting myself uh, is, you know, looks like it, it looks to them like the Fed is chasing inflation, not getting out in front of it and, and curbing inflation. And so it looks like they're always behind where inflation is. And, um, and that's why, you know, but you, you have to have faith that yep. these, uh, these other factors, whether it's, uh, you know, taming of energy prices, things like used cars, uh, shift from goods to services um, and uh, and supply chain disruptions uh, easing all of those things help conspiring with you know some uh, action on monetary policy to get it in a, in a rate so that they 're not chasing yeah. and, and while yeah. monetary policy is lagging because you, you know higher rates to, uh, a business if, if you 're going to make a you know a large uh, investment into a factory, you know, that's a big long-term decision and slightly higher rates is probably not going to preclude you, but maybe in the, in two years, you're not going to do it because of higher rates. Uh, one, one aspect that it does kind of have the, the first effect is the housing market. So the 30 year treasury is now over 5% where yeah. the last February was 2.3%. And um, we're seeing, um, so Redfin, you know, the, the online yeah. data point, they they've saw in the last two weeks um, sellers uh, dropping their 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 prices. That's the first time in a long time that's happened. And, and housing obviously has been a you know it's been a boomtown for the last two years and and a large contributor to the overall uh, inflation. So that is a, a, a clear effect that you know higher rates do slow activity and can 
you know, put a, a dampen on, um, on prices. Well, that's what we hope. That's what we hope to see. Right. Um, we'll, we'll see whether we have evidence of that, uh, in the next, in the next couple of months. I mean, right. But a lot of the, uh, a lot of the big banks, their economists are now starting to call for, uh, recessions in 2023. Um, so the, yes, going Bank. back to your point, the mood yeah. out there is still very pessimistic. Yeah. Uh, Consumers, when you ask them, are, are, are you upset about inflation? And a lot of the, the experts are, are don't don't have faith that the, the Fed can uh, land this thing. Um, I feel like we are more optimistic than the banks. And like, what, are we smarter than the banks, Brendan? I don't know, but I don't know. I just <laughs> well, for, for, I just for think me. That, that the U.S. Brandon, economy is more dynamic yeah, yeah, ben, than yeah, ben, Are you? Yeah. you are I mean, for, for for me, I, you know, I, I think like Jay Powell, uh, Chair, Chairman Powell, he's such a savvy operator in, in D.C. and like. Yeah, you know, there's a reason there was a Gallup poll from December that had the Supreme Court Chief Justice uh, John Roberts as having the highest approval rating for a, a federal leader and this followed by Jay Powell as Fed chief. Yep. And there's a reason why Powell is so popular. Like he he's not like an intellectual intellectual powerhouse like Larry Sam or Larry Summers, who's going to like trailblaze a New York contrarian path. But like he he just has a lot and sells a lot of confidence for people in D.C., and like we we trust him. Like, I, I, I trust him. Um, and like he's a, a big collaborator. But um, he also it, it sometimes seems like uh, there, there's a nimbleness there. But is the question is are, are 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 is the Fed behind the curve? And like it, it seems like you know they're, they're they're priming like Brainerd's speech. I think was notable of like making the progressive case for tackling inflation against mm-hmm. economic inequality. But it's it sometimes. If they're kind of consistently trying to find the consensus, but they're kind of a little bit behind the curve here, do they ever finally actually get above the curve? And can and it just it's just a challenge of can there be um, a soft landing? But I, I think there's still like you know, Powell he will be confirmed again for for a new term with broad bipartisan support, and so he has a lot of confidence in, in, in D.C. It's just the question is outside of D.C. Are they seeing something with less than rose colored glasses that 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 we see yeah. here? And I just read an article on Barron's. It was talking about Walmart's now offering $110,000 for, you know, first-time truck drivers. And that's almost double what they were a few years ago. And they were saying that's signs that the Fed is behind the curve. But they also admitted that truck drivers are massively underpaid for years. So I think we have this dynamic where, yes, the Fed is behind the curve. You know, if we're creating $500,000, 500,000 jobs and unemployment, you know, well below 4%, we don't need to be at zero. On the flip side... The pandemic created a, a shift in terms of the power between, you know, management and labor. And a lot of people now are realizing that they were underpaid and, and we're, we're going to have this two to, I don't know how long it is, but a couple of year re-equilibrium of, of, of that. And it's going to result in some higher prices and, and higher wages. But I think then we'll find our, our happy medium and, and kind of move on. I hope you're right. I hope you, I hope it uh, has some smoothness to it. I mean, it, it hasn't been smooth yet. I mean, look, look, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, of Jay Powell's and I want to see him confirmed and Ben's right. He is going to be confirmed, uh, and, and pretty easily. And I think, um, something about him is his, is, is his sincerity, right. And he has a sort of a transparent nature to him. I mean, so he like, I think that's his, you know, I think Ben, I think that's his super top power, right? It's like yeah. in Washington, is it, he's like, like, he's just pretty sincere. He tells you what he's seeing and he has, he has changed his mind and changed his outlook from meeting to meeting uh, when he sees different things. And, and, uh, and I think in a way in Washington, that's kind of endearing. I think that's one of the reasons why. Yeah. He's, I think you guys make a really yeah. interesting, yeah, it, it's a really interesting insight because Jay is not an econometrician. 
he no. was a lawyer from background. He can do all the, the, you know, economic analysis. We all can. But I don't think I think because he didn't have that basically quantitative basis coming up, he doesn't get caught up in his models, that his models is always right. And then and go too far one way or the other. When when things change, Jay, more so than uh, I think any Fed chair we've had for a while is willing to to admit it and just change. Yeah. Yeah. And that said, though, it cannot be denied. And we said it here before. It's like it's I mean, it's it's self-evident that the Fed has failed in in this. Yes. It has, right. I mean, if you it, it's axiomatic, I mean, their 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 mandate is price stability and uh, and, you know, and inflation has exceeded. Yeah. You know, they're even they were even, wrong about the range here. of their expectations. So yep. the Fed has, in fact, failed in that. Um, but it was for, I, I think it was with right reasons and, and reasonable considerations. And I think their, their way, uh, their path back is, uh, is credible. And actually, I actually think people see it that way. Um, yeah. The game's not over. We're, we're still, we're still battling. It can be won. Yeah. Uh, Brandon, what are we looking at next week? It's actually a fairly busy week. So the uh, Bank of Canada and the ECB have interest rate meetings. And then we have both the, the producer price index, which has become much more important in terms of an economic data point than in, in the past, and also the consumer price index. And then um, always one of the big ones is the, uh, the retail sales. So it, it's going to be a busy week. Yeah, some big numbers there uh, for sure. Well, a lot for us, less for us to talk about next week. Ben uh, Colton from Beacon Policy Advisors, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for the, uh, the update Thank on on, um, on reconciliation, the long saga of reconciliation. <laughs> Let's have you back one of these days. Love to. Uh, Brendan, have a great weekend, man. Let's uh, you too. yeah. Let's hope for some like exciting outcomes at the Masters to talk about. Exactly. All right. Uh, thanks for joining us on the Macrocast. We'll, we'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening to the Macrocast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share.